Hebrews chapter 11, we are focusing on verses 8, 9, and 10. We read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The chapter began with an explanation or definition of faith. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of of things not seen. And then it continued with great examples of faith. In verse 4, and it will continue all the way to verse 40. In Abel, we looked at faith and worship in verse 4. Enoch, faith and walk in verse 5. In Noah, faith and warning. And now in Abraham and Sarah, we, we consider a new dimension, if you will, of faith. Yet another facet that we can look at as we examine the jewel called faith. And it's faith and waiting which will be talked about all the way to verse 12 and again in verses 17 and 18. Paul, in writing about Abraham in chapter 4, verse 11, called Abraham the father of all who believe. And the story of Abraham began in Genesis chapter 12, and it continued in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16. And as you march forward in the book of Genesis, it preoccupies all the way to chapter 24. So you can imagine in the mind of every Jew, in the heart of every Jewish person who's, who's reading these words, Abraham is going to play an important role in their life, in their faith, in their history. And so the writer of Hebrews invites the reader to consider the question, Do you really, really want to know about faith? Abel's faith involved worship. Enoch's faith involved fellowship or a walk, companionship. And of course, Noah's faith involved listening, warning. And now we understand that worship... And obedience are connected because the word obedience probably is the most important word in the section that we've just read. In worship, we see the truth about God. And in obedience, we submit to what we see when we worship the Lord. And so look what it says in verse 8, the call to faith and obedience. It begins in verse 8, he says, by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. The writer relates the word faith to this all-important issue of obedience. 
We think that Abraham was born in Mesopotamia around 2166 BC. We know nothing of his early life, but all indications seem to be that he was raised in a home where they didn't really love God and trust the God of the Bible and obey the God of of the Bible. He grew up in a pagan home. Various speculations have suggested that Abraham came to faith perhaps through the testimony of Shem. Do you realize that if you follow the genealogy in the book of Genesis, you know that Noah had three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And according to the genealogy, those two lives overlapped. Could it be that Abraham heard the story of God and the testimony of God, and the judgment of God, and the preservation by God, some scholars suggest that it might have been a possibility. Others suggest that maybe Abraham heard about the God of the Bible through Job, or perhaps even through that mysterious figure who was both a priest and a king in the city of Jebus, which would later be called Jerusalem, We're not told. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the Bible mentions Abraham 308 times. 224 times in the Old Testament. 74 times in the New Testament. This includes Abraham is mentioned in at least 27 books in the Bible. 16 in the Old Testament. 11 in the New Testament. He was born Avram. In Ur of the Chaldees. Ur was a seaport, by the way, near the Persian Gulf on the banks of the Euphrates River. And James, in a different world, I would have had you put up a map that shows the Middle East where Abraham was born and how the Euphrates River empties into the Persian Gulf. Well, you kind of can see it. You see that little tiny body of water and you see the little line all the way. Well, I guess if you're facing this way. To the right, if you go up a little bit, you'll see Ur of the Chaldees. Now, what's interesting about this place, tradition places the Garden of Eden some 16 miles from this place. The city was a center of farming, manufacturing, and shipping. For centuries, critics and skeptics mocked the existence of this city. But in 1922 through 1934, there was an archaeologist named C.T. Woodley of the British Museum. He did extensive research. He basically dug up the ruins of the place and found a massive complex and a gigantic ziggurat. Not cigarette. Ziggurat. This is a tower that would have been layers upon layers, reaching up towards the heavens, perhaps modeled after the Tower of Babel. The city had two main temples, one to Nanar, who was the moon god, the other to his wife, Ningal. It was a pagan city with pagan people and pagan practices. 
And the calling of Abraham is recorded in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, and chapter 12, verse 1, and then it's repeated again in Acts chapter 7, verse 3. In, in Genesis eleven thirty-one, it says, And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go to the land of Canaan, and they came to Haran, and they dwelt there. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, it says, Now the Lord had said to Abraham, or Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house to a land that I will show you and I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Whenever you see that word blessed in the Old Testament, If I were to try and figure out one single word that I would use to describe that word, it would be the word empowered, empowered, or given the ability. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, it says, so Avram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Now, perhaps some of you, like me, may have been one of the first people in your family, if not the first person in your family, to come to Christ. I grew up in a home that was largely devoid of any kind of faith, any kind of real faith. Even though my father was from Sicily and was born, raised Roman Catholic and brought me up in that tradition. He wasn't a good Catholic by any stretch of the imagination. I grew up in a home where people didn't really love the Lord. They didn't really know the Bible or believe the Bible or live their lives as if the Bible were true. And maybe you grew up in a, in a similar circumstance where you were the first person who, di, who, who heard the gospel and believed the gospel and believed that Jesus Christ was the Lord. And you, you came into a right relationship with God through Christ. You left the life that you grew up in. And you embraced a life of faith. And Abraham was the first in his family to do such a thing. The writer of Hebrews reminds the Jewish people that God spoke to Avram. And remember when we began our study in the book of Hebrews, do you remember how it started? God, who has spoken in times past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his own dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's very good reason to believe that Avram's father was an idolater. And if that's true, Abram grew up in a home where if you said that you heard from God or that you believed God or that God spoke to you or that God had a plan for you or made promises to you, it sounded like crazy talk. But in the passage in Genesis, there are seven promises that are given. Number one, Abraham said, God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. 
And by the way, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, Abraham will, of course, and his wife Sarah give birth to Isaac, and Isaac will give birth to Jacob, and and Jacob will have 12 sons, and those sons will multiply in Egypt, and they'll turn into a group of about 70 people, and those 70 people will become uh, over a million people, and after 400 years, perhaps as many as 3 million people, they'll come up out of Egypt, they'll go back into the land, and they'll occupy the land, and they'll become a great nation. Promise made, promise kept. The second promise is, I will bless you. In what sense? I'll empower you. In what sense? That you'll be able to accomplish everything that I have planned for you. And this becomes an important principle in each and every one of your lives. Because the truth is that once God establishes that he has a plan for you. He's going to bring the resources of heaven together in order to make sure that those plans come true. The Lord says, I will bless you. And number three, he says, I'll make your name great. There's very few names in all of human history that are greater than Abraham. Three religions name him as their father. He's recognized by the Jewish people as the father of their faith. There's a reason why the Jewish people are called the children of Abraham. Muslims That means over a billion people identify themselves as the progeny, the offspring of Abram. So Christians, Muslims, Jews respect Abraham. And he says, number four, you will be a a blessing. Not only would God bless him, but that Abraham himself would be a blessing. And number five, he says, I will bless them that bless you. Everyone who identified with Abraham and embraced the message of Abraham and lived the life that Abraham called became blessed. And in verse six, it says, I will curse them that curse you. And there's probably no better example of that in all of the Bible than in the book of Esther, where Haman takes it upon himself that he is going to make sure that the Jews disappear. And do the Jews disappear? Does Haman disappear? There has been an unrelenting, demonic preoccupation with the eradication of the Jews. But every single person and every single group and every single nation that has embarked on that so destructive course of action have found themselves in miserable circumstances. And number seven, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You know that reference, in you, Abram, shall all the families of the earth be blessed, isn't a reference to Jewish ingenuity. It isn't a reference to the fact that out of all the Nobel Prizes ever awarded since the instigation of a Nobel Prize, um, some 37% have been won by Jewish people, even though they represent less than one half of 1% of the total world's population. That's not what he's talking about. He's not even talking about a Judeo-Christian heritage. When he says, in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed, it's a reference to Jesus. 
It's a reference to the reality that a real person, Jesus, is going to come into the world, that he's going to be born of a virgin, that he's going to live the perfect life that we could never live, that he's going to die on a cross and he's going to rise from the dead. And we should note at least two things about Abram's faith. His faith begins with God's call. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. Abraham was called by God and then challenged by God to be a witness to a watching world. Just like you. Just exactly like you. Do you remember when you were called by God? You were called by God that day when you heard the Holy Spirit knock on the door of your heart, when you heard the gospel, when you heard the story about Jesus and you recognized your own sin and your need for a savior and you heard that knocking and you heard that call and you embraced that call and you believed the truth about the gospel and you received Christ as your savior. And then you remember that with the receiving of Jesus came the call to be a witness to a watching world about the power of God to forgive a person and cleanse a person and change a person. The Lord God challenged Abraham then to separate himself, to separate from his family and from the pagan idolatry that he grew up in, to follow God, to leave his home, to leave his friends, to leave his employment, to leave his country. And maybe some of you experienced something similar. Because the moment that you became a Christian was the moment that certain people decided that they didn't want to have anything to do with you. Maybe you had a husband or a wife who said, I never signed up for this. Maybe you had a family member who said, I didn't raise you to believe that nonsense. Whatever happened, guess what? There was a calling. There was a, a, a journey that were called on for Abraham, Abraham would have to forsake idols. All God's substitutes in his life had to go. And if Abraham would listen to God and believe God and obey God, God promised a child, a seed. God would bless the nations through that seed. By the way, the writer of Galatians makes an important distinction that the seed is singular. God would give him an inheritance. God would give him a promised land. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. Note what the text says. By faith, Abraham obeyed God. He didn't obey God because he had to. It doesn't say, by careful persuasion, by twisting his arm, by making his life miserable, by closing every other door. That's not how it happened. By faith, Abraham obeyed God. Exactly the same way as you. You know, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So what kind of faith did Abraham possess? 
Remember what we've learned. It's the kind of faith that believes God, that believes God speaks, that believes that what God says is true. But now we understand that it's also the kind of faith that believes God and now obeys God. Abraham's faith compelled him to go to the place that God was showing or revealing it to him. God called. Abraham responded. We're left with the impression that Abraham's response was dramatic, unquestioning, complete. That may not have been your experience. Maybe you accepted Christ and you heard the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Oh, wait a minute. I did turn back. Oh, wait a minute. I went in a different direction. But for Abraham, it really is dramatic. It is a turning from idolatry, and it's a turning to the true and the living God, and he goes. This is decisive faith. Yet Abraham does not know specifically where he's going. Has that ever frustrated you where where you know that God wants you to go in a particular direction, but he hasn't told you exactly what that looks like or where that's going to be? Maybe the Lord has said, I want you to go in that direction. And you basically said, what am I going to find once I get to this place where you're calling me? What does that direction look like? And the Lord says, I'll tell you when you get there. Remember what the Bible says? There's two kinds of things that we now begin to understand as Christians. There's issues of obedience. These are things that relate to what God says. I I need you to do this. I need you to do this. I need you to do this. And you will obey or you'll disobey. But what about the things when you don't know what to do? Who to marry or a job to take or a direction to go? And you begin to pray and you say, Lord, what is it that you want me to do? And you hear nothing. What is it that you want me to do with my life? You hear the crickets. Cricket, cricket, cricket. And you go, Lord, just let me know. Tell me what you want me to do. And you hear a faint whisper. Trust me. Well, you know, if I had some very specific instructions, it would be a lot easier to trust you. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. And by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By the way, then, is there a kind of faith where you don't know the answer to every single question? Apparently, there is. So what kind of faith does Abraham possess? We know it's the kind of faith that obeys God. It's the kind of faith that compels him to go to the place where God wants him to go. It's the kind of faith that responds. It's the kind of faith that involves obedience. But it's also the kind of faith that doesn't know everything about everything. But whatever else it means, it must mean that there is no such thing as belief absent Obedience. The Bible doesn't know of such a thing. 
The Bible doesn't just simply say, just believe something and you'll be fine. The Bible seems to indicate that there's the kind of belief that causes you to respond with your life. Where will faith lead you? Where will your faith take you? What kind of a journey will you take? There was a poem by Helen Annis Casterline. She wrote, I go on not knowing. I wonder not if I might. I'd rather walk in the dark with God than walk alone in the light. I'd rather walk by faith with him than to walk alone by sight. There's a journey that we're called as Christians to take. It seems like it may be in the dark. But rest assured that even though you can't see clearly where you're going, God knows exactly where you're going. And sometimes your friends and your family might think that you're taking a journey into darkness. Because they don't understand about faith. They don't understand what it means to know and love and believe God. Abraham, in an immediate act of faith, believes God, obeys God, turns his back on idols, the moon god, and the moon god's consort. And again, what a lesson for the Hebrews. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Hebrew Christians who were wondering whether or not being a Christian was worth it. Whether or not they were going to turn back to Judaism, whether or not they were going to make the decision to leave Christ and return to the dead forms of the law. And for many Christians, they face the same issue. Some of you, day after day or month after month or year after year, you revisit the question, well, am I really a Christian? Do I really want to be a Christian? Do I want to do what God wants me to do? Here's my question to you. Did Abraham hear from God? Talk to me, people. Yes. That's the right answer. Have you heard from Jesus? Some of you have. Some of you are saying, I've heard from Jesus. Well, what did Jesus have to say to you? Did you hear from Jesus? Did you hear a knock on the door of your heart? Did you hear from Jesus that he loves you? Did you hear from Jesus that he was willing to die for you and to rise from the dead and that he was alive and that he was willing to cleanse your sin and he was willing to, to wash you clean and he was willing to empower you by his Holy Spirit and he was willing to promise you a place in heaven? Have you heard from Jesus? Because remember what the writer of Hebrews has said. God spoke in times past to the prophets. But he has spoken to us in these last days by his own dear son. Question. The promises that were made to Abraham. Did God keep his promises? The promises... That Jesus made to you. Will Jesus keep 
his promises. You see, here's part of the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. Your light far exceeds what was given to Abraham. Jesus turned on the light. No wonder in the New Testament Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. The person who walks with me will not walk in darkness. And so the journey of faith and the heritage of faith is discussed in verse 9. It says, by faith he dwelt in the land of promises in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. By faith Abraham believes. He obeys. He believes and he obeys and then he goes into the land of promise. Why did Abraham dwell in the land of promise? Look what it says in the text. As in a foreign country. Why tents? Why not build a castle? Why not build a city? Why did Abraham dwell in the land of promise as if he were a stranger in a strange land? Why tents? Abraham knew something. He knew that the promised land as wonderful as it was, and as important as it was, was only a temporary stop. The promised land was still only a type and a picture of a more permanent land. The physical land was the physical land. But there was a spiritual and eternal land. For the Jewish person, it was to occupy that land. But for the Christian, you don't occupy a place in Canaan. You occupy the Lord Jesus Christ. You occupy Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You occupy the epistles in the New Testament. You occupy all of the books in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Because you get to occupy the person of Christ. He is your promised land. So why did Abraham dwell in this particular place? Well, guess what? Because it still is going to become a type and a picture of a more permanent land. And when he says, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, that means keeping in mind that, that it wasn't still quite his home, dwelling in tents with Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson, the heirs with him of the same promise. What promise is that? It's all of the promises that we've already talked about in the book of Genesis. Abraham knew that the promised land was temporary. Abraham knew that tents are a symbol of a pilgrimage. And Abraham is making a journey with his family. His godly life will leave a mark on his children and his children's children... They were heirs with him. His land was their land. His promises were their promises. So Abraham becomes a partner. He becomes a partner with the people of God. And he also becomes a partner in the promises of God with his own children. I want you to think about this for just a moment. God's promises did not end with Abraham. That makes sense to you, right? God's promises did not end with Abraham. It continues with Isaac and it continues with Jacob. Think for a moment. Does God's promises, when Jesus makes a promise, 
to Peter, James, and John, and the apostles, when Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. When Jesus says, I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to myself, so that where I am, you will be also. When Jesus says, come to me, you are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. When Jesus says to the religious leaders in John chapter 8, come to me, believe in me. When Paul writes to the Romans, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Does the promise end with the Romans? Or does it continue with every single person who lives in every single generation for every person who will believe the promise and receive the promise? God's promise included Abraham's seed. God didn't bring all of his promises to fruition in a single generation. And that becomes part of the story when it says dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Remember the promises that are made is all of the promises Fulfilled in Abraham, the answer is no. Fulfilled in Isaac, the answer is no. Fulfilled in Jacob, the answer is no. What about Jacob's children? No. Judah. What about Jesse? No. What about David? No. And as you march through history, as we see David's seed preserved, and we finally come to the opening chapter of Matthew where a direct descendant of David, a young virgin living in Nazareth, becomes pregnant. She's overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And the promises of God come true. The Lord told Abraham, that his seed would leave the land, that they would return to the land in the future. And exactly that happened. Jacob leaves with his family, goes into Egypt, and then returns to the land. You know, on this last trip that I took to Israel, um, I got to visit for the very first time the tomb of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was the only piece of property that Abraham actually purchased in his life. He took money and he bought a cave called the Cave of Machpelah. He purchased it in order to bury his beloved wife. And upon his death, Isaac and Esau, excuse me, Isaac and Ishmael buried their father. And when Isaac died, Jacob buried him in the same place. And when Jacob died in Egypt, he begged his children to remember that when the promise of God was fulfilled, to gather up his bones and take him back to the place where his father, or his grandfather and his father were buried. And Abraham purchased this place in a, in, in a place that you and I now know as Hebron. And Abraham, when he journeyed in the land, everywhere that he went, he built altars. He 
And, and again, wherever he would go in that particular place, he would build a place. He would build a spot where he could cry out to God and worship God. And I, and I can remember going to Israel, and I've been there so many times, but I've seen all of the building projects that Herod participated in. He built a temple. He built a port. He built a fortress. He built a palace. And even though he built a temple... He never really worshipped the Lord because worship was never really a part of his life. But Abraham will worship the Lord and Abraham will walk with the Lord. And Abraham will obey the Lord. The Bible says by faith he worshipped the Lord. He built altars by faith. He obeys God by faith. And then he waits on the Lord by faith. He lives his life like a pilgrim. And by the way, the old King James says, by faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. And then it says in verse 10, for he looked for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. The old King James actually even uses the term in the earlier verse that he's a stranger in a strange land. And I think that that's an, an appropriate translation because when you're a foreigner and you visit a foreign place, it's never quite your home. You know, my children came back this week from Virginia. My son um, just, he, he experienced a deployment, uh, was stationed in Quantico for a little bit, drove across the country with his wife and my grandchildren, comes to Colorado, pulls into the driveway, and it's home. You know, he's lived in other places, but this is the place we learned to read to write ride his bike. This is the place where he was educated and formed friendships and relationships. This was his home. For Abraham, this place, in a very real sense, was never his home. So what did Abraham find in the promised land? By the way, when Abraham finally does get there, what does he find? Does he find people honoring, obeying, and serving God. So he gets to this place, the promised land, and there are people in rebellion. But I want you to note something. Abraham never makes an attempt to acquire the land through alliances or multiple marriages or to to marry chieftains' daughters. Abraham lives by faith. And as John Phillips writes, daring to believe that in his own good time, God would make good his promise. I love that. Because it tells us something about ourselves. When you look around the world in which you live, and something inside of you demands that you realize and concede, this world is not your home. This is not your final destination. This is not the place where it will all end. 
And so in verse 10, look what it says, the hope of faith and the inheritance of faith. In verse 10, it says, for he waited, in the old King James, looked for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Pause for just a moment in our study. Ask yourself this question. What exactly did Abraham believe? What have we learned so far? He believed that God would create a nation through his seed. That's Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 5. He believed God would give him a child in what looked like impossible circumstances. We discover that in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. He believes in an eternal city, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. And it's going to be repeated again, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them from afar, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they came out, they would not have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he's prepared a city for them. We're going to talk a lot about that city. So think about what we've learned. God is going to create a nation through his seed. God is going to give him a child under impossible circumstances. He believes in an eternal city. He believes that God has the ability to raise the dead back to life. How do we know that? From Genesis chapter 22. Remember the first mention of love in the Bible where God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him to the place where I'm going to show you, and there sacrifice him. And you all know the story how God stays the hand of Abraham through an angel. Was Abraham going to go through with it? Why? Because he was obeying God. Why? Because he knew that the kind of God that he believed in, who made the kind of promise that he made, if this was the son who was going to be the heir of the promise that God would have to bring him back. To life. Abraham believed in a God who could bring a beloved son back to life in order to make sure that his promises came true. I want you to think about that for just a moment because that's exactly what the New Testament asks you to believe. It asks you to believe that God sent his son, his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would have not perish, but have eternal life. Once again, think of the context. Abraham didn't simply live by faith, but he looks by faith into the future For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham doesn't simply live by faith. He looks by faith and he looks into the future. By the way, the word looked, translated waited, for he waited or looked for the city is very, very interesting. In the original language, it means to expect eagerly. It's sort of a word that used 
to describe Broncos fans if the Broncos get to go into the Super Bowl where you expect eagerly for them to win. Thank God that eternal life isn't based on whether or not they win or lose a Super Bowl. The kind of eager expectation that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is the kind of eager expectation that isn't limited to Abraham's physical surroundings. Abraham is in Shechem. Abraham is in Ebron. Abraham is in this particular place. And Abraham is in that particular place. But wherever he is and whatever he sees in whatever direction he's looking, he understands that this world is just a temporary world. You know, I say this quite often, particularly the older I get. For many of you, there will come a time in your life where you know more people in heaven than you do on the earth. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You will walk out these doors and you'll walk out of this church and you'll drive to your respective homes and you'll live your life and you'll think about the people that you know and the people that you love and the people that you've grown up with and the people who have died and you'll see how temporary, how, how temporary everything is. So what does it mean? For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Is this a reference to the new Jerusalem? Is this the city where you get a new body? Is this the place where you have a new beginning? The noun translated builder, where it says, for he waited for a city which has foundations, whose builder is the Greek word, Technites. You probably know that word. Technites, it sounds a lot like the word in our own language. Technician. It was a word that meant craftsman. It meant artisan. Depending on the context, it could mean designer. Art and Gingrich suggests that the passage should be translated architect. The second noun translated maker, demi, urgos, comes from two words. The prefix demos, which is people, ergon, literally in the Greek language to work. So it literally meant one who works for the people, but it came to mean that person who builds for the future or who creates something that lasts beyond your life. So it came to mean architect and builder. But the whole point is that Abraham begins to look for a city that God has designed. Do you remember in the New Testament when the religious leaders, particularly the Sadducees, are making fun of Jesus because they don't believe that people actually come back to life and live with God forever? Jesus pointedly says to them, have you read in your Bible that God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jesus asks the question to the religious leaders Is God a God of the living or a God of the dead? What's the right answer, people? He's a God of the living, which means Abraham's alive. 
and Isaac is alive and Jacob is alive, Jesus wound up telling the religious leaders in the New Testament, Abraham saw my day and he welcomed it. God's designed a city. By the way, do you think this city will or will not have slums? No slums in this city. Is there going to be pollution in this city? Will they experience riots in this city? Will you experience injustice in this city? Will you experience peace in this city? It's a trick question. Of course you will. This is a city of peace and this is a city of justice. And guess what? When it says, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The Bible is filled with information about this city. You know, in the Bible, it mentions city builders. It talks about Cain building a city called Enoch or Enoch, east of Eden in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Nimrod built a city called Babylon in Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. Enslaved Jews built the treasure cities of Pitom and Ramses in Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. Even the city of Jerusalem was first called Jebus, and then it was called Salem, and then its name was changed to Jerusalem, and then it would be called the city of David, and it would be called the holy city, and it would be called the city of God because because it becomes comes a type and a picture where God dwells and his glory dwells and his and a revelation is made and the king is going to appear, appear there but the city that Abraham was looking for wasn't a city that you could find in the Middle East or in North America or Central America Because the heavenly city cannot be found on the earth. Craig Keener in his IVP Bible background commentary of the New Testament relates how Philo, who is an Alexandrian Jew living in the first century, saw heaven or virtue or the logos or the divine word as the mother city designed and constructed by God, unquote. He also relates that the diaspora of Judaism often described God as an architect and a builder. And later, this is going to become an important part of the Jewish mentality because when the writer of Hebrews is writing this book, A lot of Jews want to go back to Jerusalem. And they want to go back to the temple. And they want to go back to the Levitical priesthood. And they want to go back to the sacrifices. And they want to go back to the ritual. But Abraham wasn't looking for a religion. He was looking for something way more real. Abraham knew God was speaking about heaven and the coming age where material realities disappear. Abraham doesn't simply focus on the present. He sets his sight on the future. And Abraham opts for the eternal over the temporal. And again, the statement becomes a burning indictment against the Hebrew Christians who want to go back to the temporary, who want to see the earthly, who want to experience the temple and the priesthood and the rituals. They're willing to turn from Jesus. 
for something that's so, so much less. By faith, Abraham obeys God in verse 8. By faith, he dwells in the land in verse 9. And he waits. In verse 10. He waits by faith. You know, in verse 10 where it says, For he waited for that city. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song. I must wait, wait, wait on the Lord. We will wait, wait, wait on the Lord. And learn our lessons well. And in his timing, he will tell us where to go, what to do, and what to say. You see, in Psalm 27, 14, we read, Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. John Piper writes, God aims to exalt himself by working for those who will wait for him, unquote. We wait on God, and God is glorified when we keep his promises. By the way, the Hebrew word wait sometimes includes the idea of rest, or cease, or be still. We might think of waiting as resting, but it's not the kind of resting where you just cease from activity. It's resting in the Lord's will. It's ceasing from self-effort. Wait can mean to forbear or to stand strong in the face of adversity. It means waiting to be empowered, to be still in quiet submission. It means to remain calm in the storm. It means waiting for the Lord's instruction and guidance in our culture and society when a person says wait we often think it just means stop what you're doing but in the bible when it talks about waiting it's way more it's resting in the lord it's ceasing from self-effort it doesn't mean loitering it doesn't mean hanging around Abraham waits. He does what the Bible describes. Psalm 25.5, on you do I wait all the day. We wait patiently. We wait continually. We wait courageously. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, Psalm 27.14. We wait consistently. Wait on the Lord and keep his way, Psalm 37.34. We wait confidently. I will praise you forever because you have done it. And in the presence of your saints, I will wait on your name for it is good, Psalm 52.9. We wait calmly because of his strength. I will wait upon you for God is my defense, Psalm 59.9. Waiting on the Lord in the Bible always involves concentration and communication. My soul, wait on the Lord, Psalm 52.5. As the eyes of a maiden wait upon the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord our God. The image that is given in, in that psalm is a lady in waiting. You've probably seen pictures of queens who have ladies in waiting, and, and you'll see the queen say, bring me my mirror. And she brings the mirror 
A lady-in-waiting isn't just waiting around to see what the queen wants. The lady-in-waiting looks at her queen. She follows her eyes and she follows her hand as she anticipates what she wants. It's sort of like being a husband. You look at her and you see what she wants. Abraham waits, not passively, but actively. Let me be clear. Abraham isn't waiting around to go to heaven. Again, Warren Wiersbe writes, Abraham believed God when he didn't know where, verses 8 through 10. When he didn't know why, verses 11 through 12. When he didn't know when, verses 13 through 16. When he didn't know... When, where, why. It was faith in God's word that made him leave his home. He lived as a pilgrim. And then he followed where God led, unquote. That's exactly right. Socrates was once asked about his citizenship. He said, I'm a citizen of the world. So what do you say when you're asked about your citizenship? Do you say... I'm a citizen of Colorado, or I'm a citizen of the United States of America. Abraham would have said, I'm a citizen of the New Jerusalem. You see, in a very real sense, we live here, in the here and the now. But in the not-too-distant future, in the not-too-distant future, you will wake up up on the other side of eternity and discover that every promise that Jesus made is true. So is your faith one of confident assurance in verse 1, approved by God in verse 3, pleasing to God in verse 6, Abel gives an acceptable offering in verse 4, Enoch leaves the earth without dying in verse 5, Noah's faith made it possible to survive judgment in verse 7, Abraham inherits a land in verse 8. Doesn't this sound like a faith that's way more than just simply believing a set of facts? Jesus describes heaven as his father's house. Jesus indicates that heaven is being prepared by Jesus. I go to prepare a place for you. Entrance requires being born again, John 3, 3. The name of the new city, according to Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, the city that Abraham was looking for, the new Jerusalem. Do you... Did you know that the Bible even gives its shape and size and dimensions? It says that it's 12,000 furlongs long, 12,000 furlongs wide, 12,000 furlongs deep. It's layered with 12 foundation stones, each of different precious gems. The walls have gates and the gates have entryways. There's 12 gates with three on each side of the four sides. Each gate is said to be made of a solid pearl. An angel stands guard at each of those gates. This is why we talk about the pearly gates. And inside the city, there's a river of life that makes sure that life is available to all. 
And the tree of life is there, making sure that it's an abundant life. And the main street of the city is paved with transparent gold. Can you imagine? It would be like if you went outside in our parking lot and you picked up a piece of dirt or asphalt and you said, look at how glorious this is. And you go, it's just dirt mixed with oil. Think about it. Gold in heaven, is, it's what you walk on. It's so abundant and plentiful. It's a place of holiness. It's a place of beauty. It's a place of unity, perfection, joy. There's no temple. There's no sea. There's no tears. There's no sickness. There's no pain. There's no death. And that's why it can't be here. It must be somewhere else. I'll tell you what is there. The Father's there. The Son is there. And the Holy Spirit is there. And according to the Bible, so are you. If you're in the Son. That's why Paul will write in Ephesians, he'll say, I saw you. Seated in the heavenlies. With Christ. You see, right now it all appears like we're at Calvary South Denver at a Bible study. But if we could peek into the future. And if we could see eternity just for a moment. We're there. Already. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. Lord, thank you for a faith that allows us to worship and walk with you. But also, Lord, thank you for the kind of faith that allows us to really believe that what you say is true and that that we can obey you. And Lord, thank you for a faith that we get to see what other people cannot see. And believe what other people refuse to believe. And that we'll receive one day an eternal inheritance in heaven forever with Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's stand.